Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello, everyone. This is Patty, and welcome back. Uh, it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Karen Murphy, Executive Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer of Geisinger Health. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patty, and thank you for having me. You're welcome. Karen, as I understand it, you are the founding director of the Steel Institute for Innovation at Geisinger, and also, I think, the first Chief Innovation Officer can you maybe give us a little bit of background for the benefit of our listeners on how that came about and what are the objectives of the Institute? Sure, I'd be happy to, Patty. So I had met, I was working as Secretary of, in my role as Secretary of Health with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and I met Dr. David Feinberg. And Dr. Feinberg shared with me, I, I was working on an innovative payment model called the Pennsylvania Rural Health Initiative and engage stakeholders across the Commonwealth to work on this payment and delivery model with me. So when I met Dr. Feinberg, he shared with me that he had this exciting new role at Geisinger called the Chief Innovation Officer. And just a little bit about my background. I started my career as a registered nurse. I've been a president and CEO of a health system. Then I went into public service, did a federal public service at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and then subsequently went to the state as Secretary of Health. So have a diverse background in understanding healthcare delivery plus the policy piece and really a passion for innovation. So Dr. Feinberg invited me and said, would you like to come to Geisinger and talk about the Steele Institute for Health Innovation? So the Steele Institute for Health Innovation was created by the Board of Directors really in honor of a previous hospital health system CEO called Glenn Steele, who was Glenn Steele. And Glenn needs very little introduction, but Glenn was the CEO for almost close to 20 years here at uh, Geisinger and really raised the profile in terms of the national the national stage for Geisinger being recognized as one of the most innovative delivery systems across the country. That's very interesting. And uh, I do want to spend a few minutes talking about some of the initiatives that uh, you've got uh, going on at the uh, Innovation Center. But uh, to start at a high level, for a health system today, uh, what do you think are the primary competitive forces that you have to deal with? And how does an innovation group align itself organizational objective in that context? Thanks, Patty. That's a great question. So asking the question of in a competitive environment, how does an innovation team help? So I think we are competing in, our mar in all markets on both quality and price in terms of the quality of the services we deliver, the price that we deliver at is certainly under scrutiny. And I really don't think, I think we've, we've kind of exhausted the toolbox, if you will, on trying traditional methods of lowering cost and improving quality. 
I think we've made maybe marginal advances in quality, but I mean, not in the actual deliver of healthcare, but also what I include in quality, I examine the patient experience of care, the patient's ability to access services in an easy way, the patient's ability to understand what they're paying for and what costs they're responsible for. So when I say we're marginal, I mean we're marginal. We're, we're as an industry, really marginal around this very, very complex ecosystem. So innovation, let me define first innovation at Geisinger. So we define innovation as a fundamentally different approach to solving a problem that has quantifiable outcomes. So innovation at Geisinger means we are going to focus only on problems. We must take a fundamentally different approach to solving that problem, and we must have quantifiable outcomes to measure for the innovation. So I think unless we take a fundamentally different approach to price and quality, I don't believe that we're going to move the needle sufficiently. So how does the innovation team attack those two very large problems? Certainly in collaboration with the clinical enterprise and the whole team across the enterprise. But I think our goal is to select very specific initiatives that move the needle in a, in a meaningful way. And that's a very interesting definition for the work you do. In fact, the notion of fundamentally adopting a different approach to solve an existing problem is what I hear the most when others I talk to talk about digital health innovation. And you also alluded to this today in healthcare, which is, you know, acts affordability issues for consumers. Do you care to share one or two examples of how you've actually rolled out innovation programs that address these challenges at Geisinger? Sure. So just, in, and I should say, Patty, too, that the Steel Institute for Health started July 1st of 2018. So we're just celebrating our very first anniversary. So I'll give you an example, a couple of examples of how we're using fundamentally different approaches. So you may have heard of our fresh food pharmacy where we identify food insecure type 2 diabetics and we prescribe the patient to go to the fresh food pharmacy. And when the patient goes to the fresh food pharmacy, they're provided with fresh food. In the way fresh food diet counseling, actually monitoring of preventative services, all circling this patient to improve the health of the type 2 diabetic. And I can tell you that we just expanded to three sites because our first site was really very successful. The patients that have engaged in the fresh food pharmacy have seen very positive results, some more than you would think than even through medication. And they've also demonstrated positive outcomes on their health maintenance exams and some of the other health indicators that we ordinarily would coordinate with better health, healthier lifestyles. So we're really excited about that, and that is a, a fundamentally different approach. We're currently working on developing a new model of care for patients with chronic diseases. So just at Geisinger alone, about 30% of our patient population has one or more chronic diseases. And as you know, Patty, most of them have more than one. But the system that we're using for chronic disease management right now is extremely 
labor intensive, requiring a one-to-one intervention within most cases. So a case manager or a community health worker. And we look at the diseases in a very siloed fashion. So we do we develop chronic disease management programs that are for cardiacs, chronic disease management programs that are diabetics, chronic disease management programs for COPD. But the fact of the matter is most of these patients are all three. So they could have congestive heart failure, COPD, and diabetes. So we're looking at developing a more holistic approach, and over the next three years, we'll be developing a new care model that leverages artificial intelligence and machine learning, along with remote patient monitoring and patient-reported outcomes, to, number one, as I said before, look at the patient in a more holistic fashion. Number two, to really slow down the progression of the disease. And number three, prevent disease exacerbations that would require a higher level of care, such as the emergency room or a hospital admission. So there's just a couple of examples of where we're working really hard at lowering cost, improving quality for the overall welfare of the members and patients we serve. That is such a fantastic example. You know, when I talk to folks, very often the notion of innovation is somewhat conflated with technology. And sometimes you see a lot of startups out there, and I'll come to that a little further on in our conversation. They launch solutions that are fundamentally different ways to approach a problem, but there's no validation in terms of the people process and change management aspects of it. It sounds like you've covered all of that in the uh, fresh food pharmacy, the, the whole concept that you just described. I think that is just a fantastic case study. Thank you for for sharing that. Now, you alluded to a couple of other things when when you talked about that uh, case study. One of them was artificial intelligence. Now, you're seeing a lot of new AI-enabled solutions hit the market. Uh, More recently, I've seen lots of announcements about AI-enabled chatbots, symptom triaging, things like that. And these are necessarily not necessarily just traditional health systems. A lot of non-traditional players also coming into the market. So I guess switching gears here a little bit, you care to share your thoughts on how health systems could be leveraging technology more to drive the primary care experience and address uh, emerging competition in that context? Sure. So I think that, you know, others have used, Patty, you raise chatbots within the Steele Institute. We have a hub for what we're calling artificial intelligence automation. I think the use of chatbots certainly are appropriate in in a couple places. I think those that where we have repeated questions, I think it's appropriate to, it's perceived by the patient that the bot does a better job in terms of efficiency and information, then I think that's appropriate. I think the other place where bots are going to be very important are going to be those tasks that humans do repetitively that we really don't require a human to do. and I, But I think we have to have our intelligent bots, so not just a robot that com- keeps doing the process over and over again, but one that learns from the activities that they are doing. And I, I think the part that I think is important about them is that it will help us decrease the overall cost of care because, obviously, the use of bots is much more efficient. And those use cases are are really infinite, and other industries have demonstrated they've done that really well. 
I think the big part we have to remember about when we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning in any case, is one that certainly there are a whole host of ethical issues that we have to be, of course, cognizant of. There's a whole host of, especially in clinical medicine, if we're changing the way that we practice. So there's a whole, there's certainly a side to that that we have to be very careful of. But really, even on the most simplistic side, like all technology, there's uh, many things that data scientists can do, particularly in the predictive arena. But we need to be aware that, in particularly in the predictive arena, that the data is usable so that we don't increase the total cost of care. In other words, I'll give you an example, highlighting people who are predicted for stroke, and there's 30,000 of them. Very hard to inter- do an intervention with technology with, to notify 30,000 people that you don't actually have to hire other individuals to do it. So I, I just want to be, I'm a, I'm a little bit always cautious about adopting new technology that we don't end up increasing the total cost of care as opposed to going the other way, because as we began this talk, it is critically important for us to decrease the total cost of care and increase the quality. Right. And I think you you made some very good points there. And, you know, we're all aware that even the FDA is now looking at how to really understand and, uh, you know, offer some level of oversight on how artificial intelligence algorithms are deployed in the context of healthcare and, you know, what is the level of regulation that is required or not. And so I think that debate is still ongoing, but I think you make some very good points. And just to follow up on that, I wanted to ask also about the data sources, right? So for AI algorithms to work well, the more the data and the more the data sources, the better they are at accurately predicting, let's say, disease progression, like stroke uh, that you mentioned. So can you share a little bit on how you're harnessing emerging data sources such as social determinants or genomics, for example? Sure. So Geisinger currently has, we have about 23 years of electronic health records and unified data architecture. We also have other sources of data in that unified data architecture. The social determinants of health, we're actually not only taking in from external services, but we're looking at now not only screening for social determinants of health, but also identifying community resources that we could immediately connect the patient to when we recognize what the challenge is, what the social need is. So let's talk a little bit about the fact that Geisinger is actually a health plan and a health system and you're unique. And so how does your innovation model balance the needs of both the health system and the health plan in prioritizing your innovation investment? How do you pick your big needle movers, you know, as an example? So I would say a couple things to that, Patty. So the first is that, as I said, long before I got here, Geisinger was a very innovative organization. And there are many operators that I would say are truly innovating here at Geisinger. So the innovation that occurs is not just limited to the Steel Institute. So when we pick projects or select projects for the Steel Institute, we really try to select, like I referenced before, a new model of care. We really try to select those initiatives 
that has perhaps a larger, more far-reaching ROI in both cost and quality that will benefit more broadly the organization. Now, switching topics here, lately there have been several announcements about you know, large health systems or health plans doing innovation programs as commercial entities. In other words, an example of that was a, a recent announcement by Highmark, uh, which is looking to commercialize their innovation program and offering up the data to startups and researchers to test out new solutions or products and really creating additional revenue streams. I was just curious. You know, I know it's early days yet for uh, your innovation program, but is there a long-term goal to sort of maybe try and commercialize some of this? We definitely are exploring commercialization in the co-development realm. And what that really means is if there is not currently an application on the market to solve the problem that we're trying to solve, that we would open up and invite companies to come in and work with us and we would co-develop. So there definitely is an, an interest there. I would say the difference, Patty, is that our approach is exactly that. Here we have a problem that we want to fix and we want to work with it and this is how we're going to work as opposed to just opening it up more broadly. We want to be, you know, we just want to be sure that we're answering for problems of the future, right. of the present and the future. So when we talk about innovation, we're also talking about digital transformation. You actually provided some great examples of how you're already on that path in many ways in the way you select projects, in the way you're rolling out the projects. It's, of course, very difficult for a single innovation group to meet the entire needs of an enterprise, especially if you want to accelerate digital transformation. And there's a huge ecosystem of startups out there who could potentially help you. They're funded by billions in VC money, but it's also hard to determine which ones of them are validated, what's the risk involved, and so on. So can you maybe share your thoughts on how you harness external innovation today, and, and what do you think are some of the risks that uh, need to be managed? Sure. So I think you're absolutely right in terms of their, just by definition of what they do, it, they're unproven, right? So by being a startup early in business, not a lot of experience, all the risk that comes along with that is inherent in that selection. And I would say quite honestly that we've experienced both really good experiences and have some experiences that didn't work out so well. And I would have to say that they didn't work out. The failures were just as important as the successes because we learned in this new territory of startups, we learned what we would do differently. And if you call me in a year, I'll probably say to you the same thing that we worked with a lot of startups. So we had some successes and failures because I think that's the nature of the work. Well, uh, I think we're coming up to the end of our time here. And uh, I wanted to ask you uh, about, you know, you've now, you've been in both public health and in private institutions. And most recently, before you came to Geisinger, you, as you mentioned, uh, you were Secretary of Health for uh, the state of Pennsylvania. How does the public health experience inform and influence your work at a private institution? And what is your advice for someone looking to make the transition either into public health or into private sector? So I have said this before, Patty, when I was interviewed, that I spent most of my career in the private sector, but just had this magnificent opportunity 
to work in both the federal and state government. And I always say that I wish I found public service much sooner in my career. What I would have done is moved in and out of public service and private sector, because I think the best public servant is really one that is in touch with the private sector and understand how the private sector operates, but at the same time, understands what it is to have the denominator be the federal or the the population of the United States or the population of the state you're serving. So I would advise anyone that had the opportunity to work in either federal or state government or any public health initiative, really go for it because it's a tremendous experience and it's very much unlike the private sector. That's great. That's wonderful. So we are uh, at the end of our time. Any uh, final thoughts before we conclude the podcast, Karen? No, thanks very much for having me and I really enjoyed talking to you, Patty. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.